0: In this podcast, we will be discussing mental health and suicide. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or is in a crisis, you can call Samaritans on 116 123 or text SHOUT to 85258. Or if you need additional support, contact the NHS for mental health services. Hello, I'm Georgie Courage cole and welcome to today's Sherlock's In Conversation with podcast. I feel like this should be Sherlock's and an SL Man-focused podcast, given that we're going to be talking about mental health in boys and young men. I am really thrilled to be joined by Claire Milford-Haven. Uh, Claire's been writing for the past 30 years with articles in The Times, The Standard, Homes and Gardens, GQ, Tatler, uh, but... Since the death of her eldest son, James, in 2006, she's really devoted her time to the charity she set up in his memory, James's Place. The first James's Place in Liverpool was opened by His Royal Highness, the Duke of Cambridge, in 2018. Claire's also written The Magic Sandcastle, a book she actually wrote some years ago and filed it away and then dug it out in lockdown in 22. It's... Lovely. I highly recommend it. Uh, Claire's mother, Granny Annie, was American and bought a house in Nantucket, Island in the 60s, which sounded wonderful. And their extended family used to spend every summer there. She has some very happy memories of her time there and she wanted to record those in the form of a book. And James obviously features in the book. Claire lives in West Sussex with her husband and their four children and a lot of puppies.
1: Yes. Right now, I imagine all your four children don't live... No, you? they don't all live no. at home anymore. Sadly, they're a bit grown up now. So we have puppies and horses and sheep and things instead. But they do come and visit us, the the family, that is, <laughs> and the animals. I bet
0: they do. How um,
1: lovely. Which is, which is heavenly. So, you know, family is hugely important to me. Hugely. And, I mean, <laughs> let's start
0: off with James, with his story. Hmm. Can you tell us... What he was like, a bit about his upbringing
1: and a bit about
0: how he ended up tragically taking his own life. Sure.
1: So I had James when I was 24. So I was like one of the first. That's
0: why you look so fabulous. I not think <laughs>
1: so. But thank you. I, I was one of the first of my friends to, to sort of get married and have a baby. And so James appeared and, and was this blonde, blue-eyed little rascal but divine, I mean, huge character. And the first sort of grandson, uh, male grandson, and hugely loved by all, quite naughty. He Because he, he I was the first to have uh, a child of my friends, when they all got married, he was asked to be a page boy. And probably he was, like was a page boy about nine times. And he must have been the naughtiest page boy. <laughs> I was literally, oh, my God. You What's know? he going to do this well, time? Well, you know, they're saying, the couple saying their vows and James is tearing down the aisle. And <laughs> it was, in retrospect, it was sort of hilarious at the time. It was nerve-wracking. But and so he was my eldest. And then I had Harry, who you know. I had Harry uh, three and a half years later and then Louisa three and a half years after that.
0: And you have two stepchildren.
1: And I have my two stepchildren yes. who I inherited... Goodness, 25 years ago, and we're a very blended family. I'd say a very sort of um, happily blended family, extensive, <laughs> but everyone gets on. I'm is, one of those, which and is it can lovely, be fabulous. No, it's great. It's it's everyone gets so confused um, as to relationships. So my ex-husband Nick, who I get on incredibly well with. Had three more children with his wife, Millie. And one of his daughters said, So what relation is Claire to me? Is she my stepmother? <laughs> and Millie said, Well, no. No, she's not your stepmother. Let's just call her a sort of second mummy or something. So it's 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 quite lovely amazing, amazing. that we have this um this sort of blended family. But anyway, back to James. So yeah, James was he was fun, he was sporty, he was bright, he was popular, he was kind, he was he made me laugh a lot, he was a great mimic. He was really good at mimicking people and we had a very similar sort of sense of humor. We would laugh at the same things. And I kind of, I often say that I felt that he and I grew up together because because mm, he had was, when young, I was when he had quite it. young. And so obviously his death was hideous because I felt I knew James like the back of my hand. I mean, I really felt I knew him very well. And I always used to say that James was so open. He was like an open book. But what happened was not open at all because none of us knew it was happening. So sort of going back to that period. So James was studying at Newcastle in his second year. What was he studying? He was studying Spanish and business. He was fluent in Spanish. He spoke really well. James was sort of always very industrious because at uni, you got a lot of free time. He didn't actually like that. He wanted to be productive. So he actually went and got a job in the Malmaison Hotel in the bar. You know, he wanted to be super busy. He was in a house with, with, his, uh, with some good friends in the Jesmond area and seemed very happy. But he had... Something that bothered him, something called a varicocele, which he had on one of his testicles, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he wanted to have that operated on. Mm -hmm. And he did get quite obsessed about whether he should do this, whether he shouldn't do this. And he was 21 at the time. And I said to him, listen, it's it's up to you, James. I, I can't, you know, you're a man now. I can't tell you whether to do it or not. Maybe if it's not necessary, then don't. But if it bothers you, it's nothing major, then do. And he opted to do it. But I think he was, he was quite nervous. And James, he was apprehensive, obviously, as a guy would be. And James never really took any painkillers or anything. His great-grandmother was a Christian scientist. So he didn't really believe in taking pills and stuff. I'll take a pill, you know. I've got a headache. Mm. Hint of a headache. Yeah. So reaching for the nerve. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't like that. He liked to tough it out. So he'd never had an anesthetic before. And he had this operation. It was early December, the 4th of December, 2006. And 10 days later, he was dead. So when we sort of go back to that period and we go back to that time, I remember he he went straight from... London. He had the operation in London. I said, why don't you come home? And he said he had to get back to Newcastle. That He felt fine that he was working for an exam and he wanted to get back and do the exam and then come home for the Christmas holidays. So I said, well, it's up to you. But I mean, the offer's there if you want yeah, to come home. Yeah. He said, no, he was fine. So. And, and did
0: he did he seem himself?
1: He seemed himself in the beginning. And then a few days later, he started to call me and he said, I'm not sure. I'm I'm feeling write about this I'm wondering if I can have this operation reversed and I said no no it's fine you just need to give it time James I said you know operations and anesthetics can make you feel a bit you know they don't make you feel great it can take about yeah, 10 days to, to get it out of your system to get yeah. it out of your system and I said he said well you know maybe I'll go to the gym I said no no you can't go to the gym you've just got to look after yourself and take it easy And you'll be fine. Just give it a couple of weeks. And he came home for the weekend and we went for a long walk and he was talking about this. He said, well, you know, things aren't right down there. And I said, they'll be fine, James. Let me tell you, I've had three kids and, you know, he was like, oh, mum, let's not talk about that. And I said, no, we're not going to talk about it. But I'm just saying that everything settles down and you'll be fine. So I did my level best to reassure him. He never said he felt depressed. He never said he felt suicidal. I don't know that he did at that stage. He went back up to Newcastle. And I think I remember we had a conversation when he got back that night. And he said, um, you know, thanks for a lovely weekend. You always make me feel better or something. And I said, well, you know, I'm pleased. I mean, that's, that's what I'm here for. And I said, you take care and we'll see you next week. I was seeing him four days later. What I didn't know was during that week, the next week, the following week, he was desperately Googling, emailing, um, saying he'd had this operation, saying that he didn't feel right. We discovered all of this later. He went to a walk-in centre, an NHS walk-in centre. I think on the Wednesday he said he felt very anxious about the operation, that he actually felt suicidal. They sent him to A&E as a low priority, which is staggering, bearing in mind if you tell someone you want to kill yourself, you actually should... And that he's a young man. Um, and at that stage, young men were highest risk for suicide. So he was sent to A&E. He walked out after, I don't know, an hour, two hours probably. Later that day, he went to see a GP. When I spoke to her after he was dead, she said he never mentioned once he felt suicidal. She said he was anxious about the operation outcome, but she said, I felt when he left, I'd reassured him. I didn't know anything about this. The walk-in centre had our GP's number. They never called him. And so when I reflect on this experience, the number one thing is this whole confidentiality. If somebody goes into their doctor and they say they either feel like killing themselves or killing someone else, the doctor has to say, listen, I think we need to share this with your family. Or, well, if they're talking about killing someone else. Yeah. They'll have to share it with the police, probably. Yeah. You know, there was, there was no, nobody called the doctor, nobody called me. I was in the dark. We we're all in the dark. And then when James came home, so this would have been ten days after the operation. I said, "Oh my, you know, you don't look right." And this is after this is the second He's, time he came home. Yeah. So second, so I'd seen him. Yeah. You know, I'd seen him twice. I'd spoken to him every day. I was a, I, I was aware that he wasn't right, but I didn't know. To what extent? To what extent. And when he walked in the door, I said, you know, you know, what is going on, James? He said, I don't know. I just don't, I don't feel right, mum. And I said, OK, well, look, just go next door for a minute. And I called my GP. And I said, look, I don't know what's going on with him, but he's not right. And he sa- I said, I want to make an appointment to see the surgeon who did the op. I want him reassured. Can you organise this? And the the doctor said he would organise it. And he said to me, you know, keep an eye on him. And he said, if he gets worse, we'll put him on antidepressants. He said, young men of James's age can be very sort of sensitive about this kind of thing. Sure. Was the way he put it. So I said, "Okay, well, of course. Which which all sounds. It's just all. Yeah. Which all sounds. It was actually very good advice, very practical advice, the right advice. We made the appointment to see the surgeon on the Monday. James said he didn't want to go the following day because we had like a family event. And so I said, "Okay, well, we'll see the surgeon on the Monday. And then we had lots of cousins and family over to stay. And I was watching James and I could just tell he wasn't right. You know, he wasn't his normal jolly self. He wasn't cracking the jokes like he normally does. He was a bit he was a bit sort of aloof Mm -hmm. when they all went to the pub after dinner. He didn't go. Or he rather, he took them and then he came home. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's not like you. He said, no, I'm just tired, Mum. I, I haven't been sleeping well. Next day, I kept watching him, kept thinking he's not right. But I knew we were going to see the surgeon. So yeah. I thought, well, in a f- couple of days, you know, we'll get we'll the get reassurance yeah. we need and should all be fine. I don't know, you know, it's it's such a long story. but But basically... That night, we drove to his dad's house, all of us. We were all going to stay there. We are all friends. We all get on. And within half an hour of being there, James had taken his own life. He'd been in the car with his brothers. Apparently, the music was on. He was singing along to the music. Doesn't make sense. That was it. So that was December the 15th, 2006. And the operation was on the 4th? Yeah. Wow.
0: And he was 21? 21.
1: We'd had his 21st birthday party at home in September. You know, know, I look at the pictures and it was like, there's no indication that James had any problems or that anything was wrong. And I don't believe he did. Something tipped the balance of his mind when he had this operation.
0: And have you ever, did you meet the surgeon? Did you, or, or did you feel that was futile? And
1: I, it's a tricky one, you know. I, I, I think I spoke to him. I can't really remember. I've got some notes somewhere where he told me some stuff. I got a letter. I challenged the anesthetic. I know that in an anesthetic, there is a cocktail of different drugs. One of those drugs is fentanyl, mm-hmm. which can make some people feel suicidal. But it's like 1%. You know, it's very rare. Mm. But anaesthetics can affect a small proportion of people. I, I will never know, sadly. But everything that I, that we discovered, that the police discovered when they looked through his laptop, a message James sent to his girlfriend, everything was... referred back to him not feeling he was the same man anymore. I'm not the man that I was. Before that operation, yeah, I think he felt he'd been castrated. To be honest, and James was some someone who, who kind of held being a man, being manly, being he held all of that in really high esteem. I remember he had on his doorframe; he had one of those sort of pull up, <laughs> pull up bars. <laughs> you know, he would he was kind of into his um, you know protein powders, creatine, whatever it is. Mm. He was at that age where sort of being a man was really important to yeah. him. And he felt like he was not the same guy, but he hadn't given himself any time to recover.
0: And he would be 30... God,
1: he'd be. I can't believe it. He'd be 30... Well, he would be 36, going to be 37.
0: And Harry being your next child's son, he was how old when...?
1: He was 17... My stepdaughter Tats was 16. My stepson, we've got two Harrys. My stepson, Harry, was 15 and Louisa was 13. She'd just started at her boarding school. It was a very difficult time for all of them. Extremely challenging.
0: Well, I am sorry and I I can't imagine how that feels. And life is shit.
1: (laughs) And yeah, it's, 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 (laughs) it's, it's difficult. You know, people, you can't really quantify. What happened, you know, the sort of, I guess, the trauma of what happens to anybody in life. You know, I think of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. And I, I just can't imagine what those poor refugees are going through. The women, the children who've left behind their husbands, fathers, brothers. Life is very tough.
0: Life is very tough. For, for
1: many, many people. And yes, I've had a, and my family have had a very, very challenging, tragic sad experience but we're still here
0: we're still here you've got big hearts you're you're (laughs) using what you went through positively yes yeah yeah for you know cause is that the right word i mean we all know that suicide is the biggest killer in men under the age of what what is the
1: well under the age of 50 really now so probably in 2006 James was in the highest-risk age group at that stage, so that was sort of 19 19 to 25-year-olds. Now it's shifted a bit, and actually middle-aged men, so sort of 45 to 50-year-olds, are also very, very high-risk. And I, I kind of put that down to, well probably they're, they're both very strategic stages in a man's mm. life. So when a guy is sort of 19 to 25, he's at uni, he might be away from home for the first time, he might be having his first sort of serious relationship, that might go pear-shaped, that might really affect him. He might be struggling with his sexuality. Yeah. Um you just don't know what, you know, there's a lot of hormones, so his testosterone is probably going through the roof. And I think it's a bit of a tangent, but I I would love to do some research actually on the hormone levels and and what happens with the brain as well mm. because I feel that James's what happened to him must have affected his hormonal levels and that had an effect on his on his brain it's a very character defining time isn't it it's a very yes it is and it's you know you're you've you're sort of turning from a an adolescent male into a young man Finding out who you are. and you're, you're finding out your identity. You're thinking about the future. You're thinking about, you know, what you're going to do. James was always coming up with... Yeah, what did with, he <laughs> want to do? What well, was... he always had little sort of projects um, ongoing. He had a, a little project called Speaker Boo, which was little speakers. I mean, it was quite ahead of his time, you know, like sort of mobile speakers, like now we use them the whole time. He was doing that on the side. Oh, my God, he had lots of... Lots of ideas. I'm not sure, I'm not sure uni was necessarily right for him. Mm. I think, and this is something I think about a lot. You know, when I was young, not everyone went to uni. Now everyone does. And it's not right for everyone. No, I'm so
0: on that page.
1: Yeah, I think James actually would have benefited more from going in the army. I think that would have been much more his, his thing.
0: You I, were saying that, that you think the these two periods in men's life, so sort of nineteen twenty five and then And then and then obviously to, you've
1: got the challenges of when you're in your sort of I would say sort of forties, fifties, when you've obviously got huge responsibilities with family. Huge pressure. Huge pressure. You know, work, you might be maybe wanting to change, you know, your job, or you may have had troubles at work. Going back to hormones, your testosterone levels are depleting. So that's going to have an, an effect as well. Right. So I think, I think that, you know, the two sort of cohorts of men that we see at James's place, I mean, we see all ages from the age of 18, males, 18 up. But the two biggest cohorts are sort of the student population, so 19 to 25-year-olds sort of and this slightly middle-aged mm-hmm. male Group. Interesting. Tell us
0: about James's place. When did you Goodness. set it up? I mean I'm not <laughs> gonna ask you why. Um that's bloody obvious. Um it's it opened in Liverpool first off. Why Liverpool? How did you go about it? Can you can I am I'm fascinated in, in the process and
1: So well basically we, like we set, set up Yeah. So after James died. About 18 months afterwards, we decided to launch a fund in his name. You know, we discovered that suicide was the biggest killer of young men at that stage. And we were sort of horrified that we didn't know. But why would we know? I guess.
0: So I guess what you're saying is those stats aren't new. We're just
1: sharing them more now. We're talking about it more now. I think the whole kind of mental health space has changed I've seen a huge change in the last 15 years. I think people are much more open about talking about it. Mm. I think men are, you know, becoming much more self-aware in that respect. Mm-hmm. They're not so ashamed to talk about the mental health. Yeah. I don't think you want to overdo it. You know, you don't want to go sort of completely where everyone yeah. has too much sharing. Yeah. But I think men feel much more able to open up now. Yeah. And I think I have to say I think you know that heads together the the yes. Royal Foundation, I think that was brilliant at kind of having starting the conversation yeah. and
0: removing the stigma of talking about your and feelings. removing
1: and the stigma and to have members of the royal family actually talking about mental health is just a breakthrough. Yeah. yeah. So amazing. But but also I think you know I've noticed in the area that I work in, in suicide prevention, there's there was a certainly there was a group of parents like myself and we just started lobbying and we just started asking for change and really really pushing and there's quite a strong force there you know when you've got lived experience and you go and talk about it at a health select committee in Westminster you know it has it it is quite powerful Mm. and you are listened to and I think that's been quite impactful so You know, there've been quite a few, there's quite a large group of us. But anyway, going back to, so 2008, we set up a fund. We had a big event near where I live at home at Cowdery Park Polo Club where we've, uh, the family played polo for years. And we had like a rock and polo event, which was incredible. We had all the old rockers there like um, Kenny Jones, Mike Rutherford. We even had Ringo Starr and they all played for free. And we put on this sort of big event And we raised, in one night, half a million pounds, which was incredible. So we had the, you know, we had the funds, we had the energy, then we had to learn more about the the arena that we were about to be working Uh, in. And who's we? It was really myself and and Nick, my ex-husband, James's dad. So we kind of set about you know, funding other charities, because we were just a fund at that stage, Mm -hmm. weren't operational. Mm -hmm. James's Place hadn't started. But there were other charities that were doing great stuff in this space, and also I kind of got people together so we shared information I really don't believe in charities working in silos I think you need to share I think you need to really avoid duplication of effort and funds so that was something that yes. I sort of created because you
0: can be so much more powerful as as, as, one as a united and and yeah, and yeah. 100%. So true there is so true there's so many so many charities, charities with a similar work mission work
1: autonomously you know mm-hmm. and you need to obviously you all, all need to fundraise independently because you've each got your own reason why you've set up your own charity mm-hmm. and there's a sentimental reason many of the charities but co-fund you know share share information so that you're all on the same page. Anyway, so we did that for a number of years but all the time I was reflecting on James's experience and and I kept thinking, what could have changed that pathway? What could have made the difference? What kind of intervention might have saved James's life? And I kept coming up with this safe space, this kind of calm, peaceful, non-clinical environment where he could have walked in and just gone and Someone would have had open arms. Yeah. Yeah just somewhere where he would have been valued and respected and he would have felt safe and good. I d- started doing some research and I looked at different models. I looked at the Maggie's, Maggie's Centres, which is, as you know, cancer care, and I loved their sort of holistic approach to helping people who've been diagnosed with, with cancer, but it, you know, this is their sort of non-clinical, holistic, embracing support. And I looked at that and I looked at other models in kind of suicide prevention, a couple of other ones. And I just came up with this vision for James's place. I got a call from, and I talked about it a lot. I mean, I have bored the pants off everyone. I mean, literally, I like, oh, God, Claire's talking about that plan again. Well,
0: the more you talk about it, the more you have to do it. No, I know, but <laughs> I just,
1: I did, I think I really did bang on. So sorry to everyone I banged on to. Anyway, obviously banged on enough that I got this call one day from... Uh, an academic in Liverpool who told me that she had heard about my sort of idea for James's place and she's Dr Pooja Saini and she said I'd love to hear more about your plan will you come up to Liverpool and I said yeah great goodness I've never been to Liverpool I'd love to yeah so I went up and she'd organized a sort of meeting there are about eight sort of different stakeholders in the room, and anyway. talked about my plan and vision and they all said yeah we, we like this i think liverpool could really do with a james's place and i was like oh okay this is this is good they're really engaged in this yeah this might have legs so so then she said will you come back in a couple of weeks i might get a few more people round the table and i don't know if you've been to liverpool but they mm-hmm. are the friendliest people on this planet the scousers are just they're magic they really are they make you feel so kind of one of them and yeah they're just they're brilliant so a couple of weeks later I went back and there were like 30 people around the table went, oh my god this is terrifying and they yeah. really wanted James's place and that for me was it that was yeah. enough so I said okay great
0: uh, our levels our suicide levels in men higher in Liverpool
1: they're high everywhere but they are they are high in Liverpool. The social deprivation in Liverpool is is high. Mm. It's a problem. There's a lot of um,
0: and that's very drugs,
1: drugs and alcohol problems yeah. up there. And there's four universities, so there's a huge student population. Sure. And I wanted to have James's places in university cities. So anyway, we had the we'd chosen Liverpool.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: and then we just had to get a bit more funding. So that's when Harry, who you've met, my other son, said, "Well, Mum, I know what I'm going to do to to fund, you know, to get the, create the funding for James's place." He said, um, "I've got an idea." And I thought, mm-hmm. "Oh, how lovely! Harry's going to do a marathon or something." He said, "No, Mum, I'm going to row the Atlantic." And I said, "No, you're not. You're not doing that, okay? So you're not doing that, Harry." And he said, um, "No, no, I am." And we've already. we've already sort of made the plan and we signed up and I've got you know Rory and Toby and Sam on board and, and I said you're not doing it so the first time in my life I had a sort of impasse with my second son who I adore but I was terrified I'm sure I was absolutely terrified that something would happen to him anyway long story short they they managed to win me over and I said, Oh, all right then. And off they went. Off they set, you know, in this stupid little rowing boat across the Atlantic. I got my first grey hairs.
0: Oh my god. It, I mean, I, I remember watching and I mean, it was just incredible. It was incredible.
1: It was brilliant, actually. It was just like it was so exciting.
0: Spine tingling stuff. It, and if you're listening, Google <laughs> Roe for James and read Harry went with Stanley and about Rory and Toby and Sam read their story it's amazing what they did it's amazing and they raised a huge amount of money didn't they and yeah they in took fact, my brother went and met them at the did. finish your, line your brother was with us he was too much of a wimp to join them I think but, uh, <laughs> he was there to he was there to wave them
1: in but he my god was. what an
0: incredible thing they did
1: it was extraordinary and they took 39 days to cross the atlantic and we all met them in antigua which was amazing and yes your brother fred was there and that that day when they <laughs> rode in my god it was one of the happiest days of my life i mean i when i when they lit the flares when they crossed the line the finish line and they came second by the way so they did Amazingly, against people that, really that well, there were the, there were some <laughs> professional rowers who came in first, you know, but not much before them, and they did amazingly. And the 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 different emotions that I felt that morning when they came in, I can't explain. It was sort of, I was proud, I was relieved, I was, gonna say. I was happy, I was sort of, I was all over the shop. I mean, one minute I was crying, the next minute I was laughing hysterically. I mean, it was just mayhem, but. They were back. They were safe. They were on dry land and they raised over £650,000. Wow. I mean, it was in the press. It was huge. It was on the BBC. It It was amazing. So we had the funds. I had no excuse and I had to start James's Place. (laughs) Yeah. So we, that was in, they came in to English Harbour, Antigua, January 2017. And we opened James's Place in June 2018. Again, that was an incredible day in the journey this whole journey of my life since James has died that day in June I think it was June the 19th 2018 when we opened and Prince William the Duke of Cambridge came to open centre and literally we'd had to kind of it was all quite last minute him coming and it was so kind of him to come but we had to sort of literally put the paint you know it wasn't quite ready shall we say and he was very sweet when he came, and he said, "Well, I love the smell of fresh
0: paint, <laughs> wet paint,
1: wet paint. Well, I was just dried." Right. So that was a
0: momentous day. Uh, and what what does it look like inside? I mean, what
1: what's the setup? And so the setup. What was key for me was that we created this very sort of warm, calm, peaceful environment, and that's what we've created. So we have. Uh, as I said, we have a sort of Georgian townhouse. It was four bedsits, and it's now four therapy rooms. They're big rooms, and then downstairs we have a kind of, you know, reception area and a waiting room and a beautiful garden at the back, which my sister, who's a garden designer, um, created out of nothing. I mean, she's created this haven. Um, it's so lovely. My sister Louise has done that. And there's like a lovely water fountain and it's super peaceful. We've got seating areas out there. So you can do your... It's almost like another therapy room Mm. outside.
0: And what's the premise? How how do people get in there, go there? Do they have to be
1: referred? Can they turn up? So the the premise is that um, it's male only because I think I mentioned earlier, men are three times more likely to take their own lives than women. And therefore i wanted to target the high risk category and that's males yeah so anyone any male over the age of 18 is eligible to come to james's place providing he sort of meets the criteria so we don't we don't take anyone who has very complex mental health issues because that's not really our skill set our skill set is suicide prevention and if somebody has very complex mental health issues they would need to be in secondary care mm-hmm. so we don't take anyone with complex mental health issues. We don't take men who are actively abusing alcohol and drugs because they won't engage in the therapy. But if they're in recovery, yes, we can take them. They need to be registered with a GP. So we take referrals from A&E, uh, from GPs, from student counselling services, from mums, sisters, brothers... You know, girlfriends, daughters, anybody, and self-referrals. Right. And we do a welcome assessment when they come in, and we decide which therapist is going to take them on, and then, yeah, they have face-to-face, up to nine face-to-face therapy sessions.
0: And is it purely charity-funded?
1: Yes. Although, having said that, we have recently had... Funding from the Department of Health. Amazing. Which has been amazing. Wow. And that was really to reflect, well, really to reflect how we managed during lockdown and how we managed to keep going and we managed to keep doing the the sessions online. But I'm hopeful that we will continue to get some funding from the Department of Health going forward. And is online something that you've continued with? We'd prefer face-to-face and actually the guys prefer face-to-face. And also... For some of them, the problems are at home. Mm-hmm. So they need to get out yeah. and they need to come in. And and what volume of men have you seen since you opened? Oh, my God. Hundreds. 700, 800. Wow. Yeah, wow. a lot.
0: And are there plans to open more centres?
1: So, yes. We are a small charity with very big ambitions. Um, we have another centre in London. We're actually... Currently in temporary space, but we're opening our centre, which is in the city of London, eh, sort of near Moorgate. It's in an amazing space, actually. It's um, It backs onto some land that's owned by the HAC, okay. which is the Honourable Artillery Company. Yeah. And again, it's a Georgian townhouse. I think James is directing us towards a certain <laughs> period <laughs> in architecture, but that's great because they're lovely buildings. And there we have six therapy rooms. And a very sort of similar layout to what we have in Liverpool, and that's coming. We're going to open in, uh, hopefully, open the doors in June.
0: Amazing. Well, and will, you, will you let us know? I'll let you know. And we will.
1: Yeah. SL Man. We'll, we'll invite we'll, you.
0: We'll, we'll, we'd come love and see to. the space. We'd it's, love to. Absolutely. It's
1: brilliant. And then we plan to open three more centres. We want to become a national charity, and so we plan to open three more centres. Amazing. I mean, it is extraordinary, really. What an
0: amazing thing to do. Well, after it's suction. um after
1: such a tragedy, but but
0: it's an incredible cause, and I'm I'm in awe of anyone that sets up a charity and and <laughs> well, it's work makes you know, that happen because it is bloody hard work to fundraise, isn't it? And um,
1: it it is fundraising is is obviously the the key to sustaining what we do. We've got an amazing team at James's place. You know they are incredible, and they love the work that they do. the The work is as you can imagine, very challenging, but they do such a great job, Every everybody there. So it's bizarre because it's gone from literally being myself and my ex-husband to, you know, I've got a whole team now. Yeah. Which has meant that I can step back a bit, which actually I'm I'm ready for. Yeah. I'm still very involved, but I'm not doing the 40 emails that I was doing a few years ago. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about
0: advice can we talk about what you might say to other parents to parents of boys of teenagers of Mm. of young men I mean I'm a mother of a of a boy and he actually has learning difficulties and and I I bore friends to death with saying my only mission is to get him through his education and his teenage years with his mental health intact And, and actually I I firmly believe that for all my children I'm in that period of time choosing Choosing the big school for my eldest and my daughter, and and someone said there are so many, so many right schools for your child as long as you're choosing it for your child and not for you. And and I'm, I firmly believe I just want my children to to get through these formative years with their mental health intact. You're nodding. I mean, how, how? Tell me, I'm here. I'm all ears. It's my biggest worry, and and as a parent. And parents, this thing—I'm sure everyone agrees. Like, what advice do you have, having been there? I mean, you, you, clearly you had an amazing relationship with James, and, and and perhaps it's slightly different circumstances. I know for you, your big thing is that there should have been someone who took him walking in and saying, "I have these suicidal feelings," more seriously, and and yeah. that's why you've set up James's place. But you, know, you have a great relationship with your children from. From what I hear from what you said, what, what advice do you have? How think, open are you about it with children? How-
1: yeah, I think it's, as I said earlier, I think we're much more aware now of sort of mental health generally. You know, we 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 talk about it, we read about it. It's become a much more open subject. Mm. Therefore, with, with parents bringing up, you know, young children, teenagers, adolescents, young men, I would just always be ugh, no, vigilance too strong a word always be aware if there's any change in behavior if you notice a change in their sort of sleeping patterns or eating or socializing or any sort of subtle things that they might say or you notice them maybe looking at stuff that is a bit dark Mm. just be aware Um, there's a lot of stuff online that really we don't want our kids looking at Um, there's a lot of you know trolling bullying nasty stuff you know and I just think always have a conversation always be open say you know how are you doing are you okay you look a bit down shall we have a chat Um,
0: and how do you feel I feel as a parent it's hard to know I, I agree in having those conversations, but you don't want to overdo it, do you? No, because you you don't want them to. You want them to have some sort of backbone and resilience
1: and and strength of character and. But I don't think I don't think that having those conversations affects that their yeah. resilience or strength of character. I think resilience is something. I think a lot of resilience is sort of in, built into a. You know, you got you have three children and. To a resilient one isn't. Do you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. it's their DNA. Yeah. I mean, parents can only do so much. Yeah. You know, <laughs> our children are born with their own makeup, their own DNA, their own personalities. We can influence, but we can't, you know, we can't change the basic makeup of whether each they're
0: child. A pessimist or an optimist. Exactly. I mean yeah.
1: they're, they're all different. So I think we have to respect that and understand that. But if you if there is a child out of your two or three or four children that is not behaving as he normally does or she normally does definitely take the time out to to try and work out what's going on and if you are concerned and you have a a good GP go and talk to your GP and then maybe take it take it a step further and and do you believe in
0: talking about suicide to sort of adolescent children and I mean self-harm is is hugely prevalent yeah in young in, in young girls teenage girls uh, At what age do you advise you know I, I'm a real I, I sort of think the earlier we sort of have these conversations and make, make them less intense and sort of one of our team here who's got slightly older children she's very wise and she says oh just drop something in and try not to make it this great big thing when do you think we should start to put um. on their radar the kind of mental health challenges that they might face as they grow up.
1: I think when they're little you can have you know you can certainly talk start the sort of resilience building, you can start having quite open conversations not not about suicide or or self-harm, you know when they're little definitely I wouldn't I wouldn't advise that. Um I think that's a conversation to be had, you know, later on. But I think you can certainly start the sort of open conversations with little, little people talking about, you know, not every day is going to be a good day. Yeah. You're going to have some days when you're not feeling happy. Yeah. And if you don't feel happy, come chat to me yeah. or come go and talk to your friend at school or talk to your teacher. And that's normal. And that's normal. Mm. And, and, and also say that that's how you feel mm. as a, you know, say, you know, mummy doesn't feel great every day. I mm. have maybe this week I had two days when I felt sad and five days when I felt good. Yeah. And it's normal. Yeah. And we all have mental health. We all have physical health. We have mental health. And we all, you know, look after our physical health. We take supplements, we go running or whatever we do. We go do yoga. We mm-hmm. do all these things. We need to th- do the same for our brains. Absolutely. Are
0: there are there types of children or character types that you think are particularly vulnerable? You know, it's being shy or not sporty or not. I mean, clearly James did not fit that mould.
1: No. I mean... But but with James's place, do you see certain types of characters walk no, through the door? we don't. We see a real mix. Mm. But I think what is quite interesting is that a lot of the stories that I hear, you know, about children who have sadly... T- or children, young men who've taken their own lives, or even older men, is that on the surface... They were the funny ones, mm. that, you know. Look at Robin Williams. You mm. know, they were the life and soul of the party. Yeah. The clowns, and often they're the ones who are actually hiding something. Yeah. So. And actually,
0: I know of a. I I I didn't know him, but I I have several friends who had a great friend who recently took his own life, my age, and uh, he was certainly known to be the life and soul, and yeah, and no one no one thought that what was beneath the surface was there
1: no and i think i think we have to remember that we we can never know fully what's going on in someone else's mind we can only know so much and you only know people so well mm. and and people do te- keep secrets and they mm. do you know they have their own privacy and we need to respect that but i i just think it's important you know for parents listening that just when when your child children are small, yeah, just have those kind of just really easy conversations. Man, yeah. you know, are you feeling okay today? The sooner How you start, going, it, the better. Yeah. Is anyone being nasty to you at school? You know, because sometimes your children are being, you know, picked on or bullied or whatever, and you don't know about it. Mm. And just mm. just let your children know that they can always talk to you.
0: Mm. And when it comes to men, you talk about this forties category of men where the rates sort of go up again mm. do you have any advice there in fact we interviewed matt rudd for sl man mm. and he wrote about this stage in your life when you've been at it for a very long time and there's no getting off the treadmill because you've got a family to provide for and yep. and i'm not saying by the way that this is such a stereotyping that women aren't providing as well and we as women have a huge amount to juggle and that's a as i said a whole nother conversation (laughs) so I'm not you know we're in the modern world but he said you know you get to this time as a man and you've committed to a mortgage and you've got this and that and that's that's quite daunting and I remember my husband reading it and occasionally he'll flag an article we write and he was like that's amazing what he's saying Mm. and he said I'm not depressed and I'm not unhappy and I'm not um and actually he he has just made a career change but but he said, I really associate with everything he said and he's spot on. And that's why I was not surprised when you said that and I didn't know that it picked up in, in the 40s, but it marries up entirely. What advice do you have for people who might be worried about their other half or to a man listening,
1: that stage of life? Because there's a massive pride thing there, isn't there, and admitting. Yeah, I, I've, you know, I think pride and shame mm. in men is a, is a huge thing. I and mean, I think women feel shame. You know, we do feel shame when we do something we're, we're not <laughs> happy about. Um, but we don't have those that same sense of pride. I think men are very proud. Yes. Um, there's that whole kind of lion. <laughs> I don't know, just being the provider, you know, it goes back to nature, really, I think. And so when things go wrong, they feel that sort of loss of face, Their sense of pride is dented. They don't look stupid in front of their peers. Mm. And again, I think as a as a wife or or just be really supportive. Again, just uh, just have those conversations. Try and get your your man to open up Mm. and and talk to you. And and if he won't talk to you, then maybe talk to one of his mates and get him to talk to him. Yeah. But it's not the kind of slap on the back. Let's go and have a pint chat. It's it's. It's more something a bit deeper. It's not, it's definitely not the man up, chin up yeah, chat. Yeah. You know, that's passe. Yeah. What's wrong? Nothing. Come on. I know yeah. there's something wrong. Let's go. You know, persist. Yeah. And get it out. Yeah. They always feel better when they do get it out. We all do. Yeah, we do.
0: Can you talk to us about the magic sandcastle? <laughs> yes. Such a lovely story.
1: Oh. Well The Magic Sandcastle is is it's my first children's book. It reemerged during lockdown, the first lockdown, so two years ago. My my mother, Granny Annie as she was known, was American and she very sadly died um during lockdown two years ago. And I was going through some papers and stuff and I dug it out and a friend of mine Um, encouraged me she said why do not you get it published I mean you know everyone's at home sort of doing nothing or well they'd sort of work they are doing stuff but now's the time if you're ever going to do something with this get it published so so I did I guess I was sort of thinking about my mum and thinking about the happy times that we had spending summers with her on her on Nantucket in America you know I was born in New York um, and went but lived in England all my life because my father was English but we spent every summer there and then we took our own children there and I guess I just wanted to go back to that really happy time when you know James was very much the ringleader with you know of five kids a blended family and um and it life seemed very carefree then so I wanted to go back to that time I wanted to reflect that time and I wanted to weave a story that had some little messages
0: and what what's the it's a really lovely story and (laughs) and you read a lot of children's books now and there's like smacked you in the face of like this is the takeaway or the what's the what's the takeaway because it's it's subtle and it's
1: really gentle and it's just it's a really sweet family story um I think the takeaway is about, it's about family. It's about teamwork, collaboration. I'm very keen on that. Mm. Um, It's about the role of grandparents. Yeah. Um, I didn't know my grandparents, sadly. They died when I was very young, but I see how my mum was with all her grandchildren, and she was great. She was great fun, and she played a big role in their lives. So it's about that, it's about nature, it's about being creative with nature, Mm. it's about not spending all day on your mobile phone or iPad or screen, It was about going outside. I think nature is hugely important in life, so going outside and when you're on a beach, you know, all around the world you see kids building sandcastles. Mm. Um, It's about competition, I love competition, I think competition's good for the soul. And I guess there's that little resilience message. So in the book I don't know, it's a spoiler alert now. <laughs> <laughs> but in the book, this beautiful sandcastle that the kids build, one of the kids has a dream about it being there being a big battle that he has a dream the night of the sandcastle competition, the night before. And he dreams that there's this battle and when they get to the beach, yes, the sandcastle is destroyed. But obviously by the tide. Mm. So, rather than just throwing their buckets and spades, (laughs) throwing their toys (laughs) out of the out of the pram, they um, they rebuild, and they win. Yeah. So it's about not letting hurdles knock you, and just just having that strength. Say, okay, right, we've had a little little knock here. You know, we spent all day building the sandcastle um and we'll we're going to do it again so it's about just keep keep going keep going that's that's my that's the way i kind of live my life anyway like and my it. children that's the way they live their lives
0: are you going to write more children's books
1: yes i would love to write more children's books i've got another one which is in my head which i'm not going to talk about yet and there's also another book i want to write which is is not a children's book it's a it's a book that i've almost finished whether I publish it or not I'm not sure it's it's very personal but it's very much about how the emotions that I have felt um, since James died and how I've dealt with it and the book would be in the form of a letter to James because I don't want to tell anybody how they should feel I want to tell James how I feel but if somebody reading it Resonates with how I have felt. Then that's great. It's kind of almost there. It's, it's taking its time, shall we say? Claire, thank you so much for joining me.
0: I I take my hat off to you to have turned such a tragedy into something so positive. I mean,
1: well, thank you for having me. Sort of bang on for
0: an hour. No, no, it's <laughs> been it's been amazing to talk to you, and I'm we're hugely anything we can do to support james's place let us know we would love to come to the opening of the london um, james's place and that would be um, amazing well we'd know. love for you to come and see it. it's a thank very you. special
1: place thank you and Anna. as i say i think james very much has directed us to um the buildings that we have and mm. he is very present for his legacy i'm very happy to be doing what we're doing
0: yeah, what a legacy. And what a great woman you are. And thank you so much for coming in. What an important conversation to have. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's it for today. To find out more or donate to James's Place, visit jamessplaceorguk forward slash get hyphen involved forward slash donate. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or a crisis, please call Samaritans on 116 one, two, three, or text SHOUT to 85258. If that struck a chord with you, then please leave us a comment, tell your friends to listen to, and we will be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more